Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. In this episode, you'll hear from a healthcare leader who is a recognized expert in the 340B program. Lisa Schultz shares some of her tips for staying current in healthcare and some of her favorite books for professional development, including Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell and Everyday Emotional Intelligence by Harvard Business Review, which is what she's currently reading. Lisa encourages pharmacists to be engaged and to grab a seat at the table versus being on the menu as healthcare reform and, in particular, payment models are being developed. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast, Lisa Schultz. Lisa has a PharmD and MBA and has had a career spanning retail, health system operations, government, association management, and technology solutions. She is currently the head of industry relations at Century Data Systems. Lisa, welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thanks, Hillary, for having me as an invited guest on your podcast. Uh, it's great to be here, and I'm really looking forward to um, talking through some of the challenges in 340B. Wonderful. Well, now that our listeners have heard a little bit about your background, maybe you can fill in any gaps to that intro and maybe share a little bit more about your personal life. Oh, geez. So my personal life. Well, um, where should I begin? Personal life. I would say, well, first of all, I am a pharmacist by training and background, and I always tell people that, but I am a non-traditional pharmacist, and non-traditional meaning I have stepped outside of the box of what people think of pharmacy and have really done an adventure um, way outside of pharmacy and have landed in the technology space, but uh I guess what got me here, just a little bit about me, is I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, so I'm a native Texan, and I never, ever thought I would leave Texas, let alone Houston, and I find myself having lived in Washington, D.C. for the last 10 years, and more recently fleeing the snow and, and living in the great state of Florida. Um so I guess a little bit about me. I love Florida because I love beaches and I love relaxing. Um, most would never know that through the work that I do because I am 150% in my work. And when I get a chance to relax uh, on the weekends, I spend my time kind of just uh, vegging out on the beach and reading leisure books and reading management books and how to just be a better person. So um, I always say that's my time. I sharpen the saw every weekend. Yeah, well, that's a good little glimpse. I, I wish I was there on the beach and reading some some fun books. And I, too, enjoy getting to check out some interesting reading. So you'll have to share what, what current book you're reading so um, some of our listeners can see if that needs to be on their radars. So, and Lisa, we first met when I was interning at HRSA's Office of Pharmacy Affairs. And at that time, you were leading the PSSC, uh, which offered consulting services for 340B entities. And 
Now you're at Century Data Systems, which is a technology company that supports 340B as their head of industry relations. So can you tell us about your path to really becoming an expert in the 340B space? Wow. So PSSC, that takes me down memory lane. (laughs) Wow. Well, the journey has really been an adventure with a whole lot of tales to tell. Um, And, you know, for me to become an expert in 340B, it really took having a passion for patients, uh, the community, and then doing the right thing. Um, All of those traits I learned in the various roles that have led me here today. As an expert, um, as defined by, actually, I'm going to tell you one of my favorite books um, on leadership is actually called Outliers by um, Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, yep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he defines being an expert as someone that has 10,000 hours as that magic number to greatness. So I can say I have 10,000 hours in 340B, but... You know, if you say you have 10,000 hours in 340B, that's really just cutting the surface. It's like a piece of 340B because 340B has so many sides. Um, I actually have, when I was calculating my hours and time spent, a little over 50,000 hours and growing um, in five key areas just in 340B from the retail side, the hospital, government, association, or what I like to call advocacy Um, and technology. So let's see how many experts we have out there because there's no one expert in this field. There are so many angles to take. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And so speaking of 340B and and, uh, the winter meeting is just around the corner, which I am sure you'll be attending and possibly many of the listeners. Uh, and there are a lot of changes that are going on right now with the 340B program. Could you give us a quick update on, well, maybe not quick, but give us an update on some of these changes and, and what, what's going to be some of the hot things at the 340B winter meeting? Well, there is a tremendous pressure right now for change in 2018, specifically as it relates to 340B. So today, what I'll really try to do is to focus in on four main areas, and those areas are judicial, legislative, regulatory, and government. And I'll start with judicial. So judicial is, when we talk about judicial, judicial is our court system. So there's actually a huge legal battle that is going on right now with um, got, with regards to Medicare Part B cuts to 340B participants. So if we roll back and look at how Medicare Part B was originally rolled out for 340B hospitals and all those actually hospitals that um, utilize Part B for their patients, um, CMS pays the average sales price, or ASP, plus 6%. And with the change that CMS has uh, finalized uh, this November, they're actually going to implement a change that will make it go from ASP plus 6 to ASP minus 22.5%. So associations felt that the voices of the 340B hospitals were not heard, and so they filed for a lawsuit, um, and that lawsuit, the, the hearing was actually held in December, 
um, and they're suing the federal government over their authority to implement those Medicare Part B cuts. Now, what happened is the judge actually ruled on that at the end of December, right before the new year, in, in favor of um, the uh, federal government. So an appeal has actually been put out um, the, the first week of January, and those associations, one of them being the American Hospital Association, as well as America's Essential Hospitals and some other plaintiffs, um, but they have filed that appeal, and so now the judge will, again, go back, and hopefully there'll be some traction that may prevent those Part B cuts. So that's the judicial side of things. So that leads me to then the legislative, which is the congressional initiatives that are happening. And in reference to what CMS had put out regarding Medicare Part B, there was actually a legislative initiative, um, and it's called the HR, which is the House of Representatives. It's a bill 4392. And that bill was actually put out in November, and it was pro-340B, and it was geared to actually stop the Medicare Part B cuts from going into effect. So it actually has 174 co-sponsors on that bill, and the intent of that bill was basically to redact what CMS was trying to implement. So there's two angles coming in, one being the judicial that I explained earlier, and then second being this legislative fix. Uh, but lo and behold, um, another bill was actually filed, um, and it's called the H.R. 4710. Uh, it has a nickname caused, uh, it's called 340B Pause Act. And that is, um, again, it is not for 340B. It's actually in opposition to place a moratorium on the growth of the 340B program for the next two years. Um, should that pass. So those are a couple of things that we're actually working on now. So with H.R. 4710, as I said, the 340B Pause Act, um, there has not been traction on it, but again, this is a, another initiative that Congress is looking at to reduce the growth of the program and uh, require specific reporting um, from hospitals participating in 340B as it relates to their savings, their revenue, the types of insurance that patients have, as well as um, information on third-party vendors that are helping the 340B hospital participate in the 340B program. So those are two bills. Um, as I mentioned, one is pro-340B, one is really against 340B in the grand scheme of things. That leads me to um, additional legislative items that are happening right now. One of those is in reference to what we call oversight committees. And there are several oversight committees on both the House and the Senate side that um, are responsible for various government programs. So when we look at 340B, there are two committees that have what we call jurisdiction over um, the 340B program. One is the Energy and Commerce Committee, and the second is the Ways and Means Committee. Um, specific to these groups, they have had several studies that have published over the last two years specific to 340B, looking at how the program has been operating, uh, the types of compliance and audit 
parameters that HRSA has um, implemented in the last five years. So what happened this year in 2018, um, on January the 10th, the Energy and Commerce Committee um, actually weighed in and published a report on 340B. Um, that report is um, basically titled A Review of the 340B Pricing Program. And what they did in the committee report is they focused on um, some key areas, one being the intent of the program. And so the um, committee is looking at whether 340B is operating as intended um, when it was established in 1992 as compared to how it is running today with some of the changes in healthcare. Second to that, the committee looked at growth of the program and growth meaning what has happened after the Affordable Care Act was implemented and the additional entities were added, as well as the contract pharmacy space and the number of contract pharmacy participants that has happened also from 2010 to present. Um, the third area um, within the report is related more to HRSA's regulatory authority. So one of the things that you'll find in 340B is regulatory authority is often questioned as to whether HRSA has the appropriate oversight and ability to put out guidance surrounding the 340B program. Um, the other four areas contained in the report where I'll spend not as much time is with regards to audit expansion. So Congress um, really wants to expand HRSA's ability to audit more covered entities. Um, additionally, they're looking at entity eligibility. And when we talk about entity eligibility, hospitals are allowed to participate in 340B based on specific parameters that are outlined in the regulation, and that's the uh, Public Health Service Act. And that eligibility is based upon um, in a hospital, such as a DISH hospital, which is a disproportionate share hospital, um, it is based on their percentage of care for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, as it relates to um, the inpatient setting, as well as their SSI. And what Congress points out is that they want to look deeper at whether that eligibility criteria is still appropriate um, based on today's hospitals and some of the changes that have happened with healthcare reform. The other area, again, referenced is revenue and savings. And it really relies more on Congress wanting transparency around the type of revenue that is being generated, the amount of savings that that translates to, and specifically what patient populations may be taking not necessarily advantage of 340B, but that are um, the ones that are receiving the benefits of the 340B program. So that committee report has caused a lot of consternation um, in the 340B community, um, and there will be more that comes out of that committee report with further discussions with congressional staffers and weighing in on their opinions. Thus far, the um, American Hospital Association, 340B Health, and America's Essential Hospitals have come out very strongly against the report findings in hopes that there is a better balanced approach to entity eligibility and really honing in on the fact that 
340B hospitals um, need this program and cannot afford to lose the ability to participate in 340B. So that kind of closes out legislative items. So that's a lot going on for a very, what we would consider to be a small piece of the healthcare space uh, today uh, with it within regards to 340B. The third area that I had mentioned is regulatory. And so regulatory agencies such as HRSA or CMS have some planned activities that they will be doing in 2018. One of those uh, regulatory initiatives is the uh, civil monetary penalties regulation that is to be finalized this year um, by HRSA. Second to that is HRSA will be working on a website for covered entities to be able to see pricing in a secure website. So uh, that has been on HRSA's radar um, for quite some time, and they have published more recently that they will be um, working on uh, getting that website available and so that covered entities can have a secure access to validating whether they are receiving um, accurate pricing. Um, so that's the regulatory side of things. Uh, last item that I wanted to cover was government. And in general, obviously, regulatory is part of our government. Legislative is part of our government as well as judicial. But government specific in this tone is meant at studies. So this year, the Government Accountabilities Office will probably be closing up a study that they conducted last year on contract pharmacies and finalizing that and publishing it for um, everyone to see how that study uh, demonstrated uh, the utilization of contract pharmacies in the 340B space. So a lot of activity going on, Hillary. Um, it will definitely not be a boring year. Um, there will be a lot of um, activity um, on the advocacy side, and then anything that comes into play through these various components of our government are going to require some pretty um, strenuous operational challenges for hospitals participating in the program. Yeah, well, thank you, Lisa, for breaking that down and kind of explaining three different pieces to be keeping track of because uh, as you mentioned, 340B is somewhat of a small piece of the entire healthcare system, but there certainly is a lot of uh, discussion going on right now about the program. Um, so I'm sure that it, it is great to uh, hear from people like you and and from others uh, that will probably be at the winter conference um, and just, you know, talking about what's going on because there's so much to kind of keep up with. Do you have any tips on how you stay current with what's going on in healthcare uh, and more specifically within, you know, maybe the 340B and pharmacy fields? Oh, yes. The secret sauce of staying up to date. Well, you know, there are so many ways to stay current in healthcare and pharmacy today than ever before. Um, I like to look at it as two mechanisms that I use uh, for kind of staying up to date, and that is one is the electronic media world, and then the other is in-person networking. Um, I don't think we can ever really do away with that good old-fashioned in-person, face-to-face uh, discussions. But I'll start with electronic media uh, because that's real big right now, and I don't just mean social media 
Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm a huge social media fan. Um, I spend time probably every day reviewing trends on my feeds and reading articles from top healthcare journals and publications. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. Actually, you can find me at 340BRPH. Um, and that's really where I tend to keep all my professional connections and um, learning opportunities for things that are really, you know, what I call hot topics. Um, I not only review feeds, uh, as I call that trolling or lurking, uh, but I also send out my perspective as a contributor or a, what I call a power user for different forums. Uh, electronic media updates are also just really useful for monitoring government house and Senate updates, uh, government agency announcements, um, association perspectives and publications. You know, everybody today is online. So electronic media is really key. I tend to scan really important websites in my world, which it would be the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which is ARC, uh, 340B Health, America's Essential Hospitals, obviously uh, HRSA's website, specifically the Office of Pharmacy Affairs, and a slew of others on a weekly basis. Uh, and that's just the electronic side. You know, there are a ton of electronic publications and books that keep me grounded in facts. Um, I like to tend to move towards peer-reviewed articles um, or even opinion editorials from publications like Modern Healthcare or The Hill, because these help put perspective, again, on those hot topics and, you know, what the buzz is. Um, organizations like the Clinicians for the Underserved uh, publish a journal quarterly. And those are peer-reviewed safety net solutions. And you have the American College of Healthcare Executives, and they publish a monthly um, journal on leadership perspective and finance and quality assurance programs, just to name a few. So it takes to really stay updated on healthcare and even pharmacy, knowing the entire space and what all the different stakeholders' views are. But as I mentioned, the last, you know, really what is my go-to is the in-person, and that's the traditional meeting where I find networking is still the best. Um, you need a lot more human touch um, and you really get to interact and have a lot more thoughtful discussions and dig deeper into some of the challenges so that we can really build solutions that work. Um, there are a lot of pie in the sky ideas that are in the electronic media space, but it's through thoughtful collaboration um, and difficult conversations that reality strikes a chord and we actually get executable plans by, you know, talking one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and just from a pharmacy standpoint, I try to attend at least two professional meetings a year um, related to pharmacy and the rest of my networking is really in the healthcare space with non-pharmacy leaders through state and national hospital association meetings. I attend healthcare technology conferences and manufacturer forums. For pharmacy, I rely heavily on the American Society of Hospital Pharmacy and the American Pharmacist Association. Again, I monitor electronically many thought leadership uh, groups and individuals really to just understand all the different sides. And again, I only named a handful, so there's a ton more. <laughs> Well, thank you, Lisa. That is incredibly helpful. And it's a really good roadmap for anybody who is trying to 
identify some strategies on how to keep up to date. And I can attest that Lisa's LinkedIn is always uh, full of some interesting uh, information. So it's always a good idea to um, use LinkedIn. Uh, it's always a great resource for connecting with other um, pharmacy or, or healthcare professionals. So thank you for that info. And Lisa, it's always really interesting to see pharmacists that are in unique areas of practice. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what your role is um, as the head of industry relations at Century Data Systems? So first of all, my, my role is very unique um, in most organizations, and a lot of that has to do with my past. And I know we talked earlier about, you know, becoming a 340B expert, but my role in having worked not only as a hospital um, in doing the day-to-day -day operations and managing a 340B program and seeing the patients that it's, you know, affects, but I also have worked with um, the federal government and I worked in the associations on the advocacy side. And now being in a technology company, my strengths are to provide those different perspectives and it really helps us as a company make better strategic decisions in how we manage customers and how we see 340B as the benefit to the covered entity. So for starters, I guess I am the subject matter expert. Um, as head of industry relations, I am not only the 340B expert, but I am also our expert for healthcare within our company. I'm part of the executive leadership team, and I really help um, our team understand the evolution of healthcare, and healthcare is evolving every day. And I, I put that perspective on the conversation that's out there in this space and how it will impact our customers so that it may involve anything from the development of our products to what type of service offerings we should be offering to the strategic direction. So my job is to provide that thought leadership presence in the marketplace as well, whether that's through um, podcasts like this um, or through articles and forums and presentations. Um, I am out in the marketplace. I am providing information and I am learning from others to keep ahead of what healthcare is um, evolving into. My other major role is really to work on our communications mm -hmm. and have oversight over what we are communicating, um, how it relates to 340B, how it relates to healthcare mm -hmm. and ensuring we're using the appropriate vernacular and that um, we are accurate in our translation of any government regulations um, or legislative um, rulings that um, affect our customer base. On top of that, it's um, again working with um, healthcare policy leaders and looking at how those things um, that they're talking about implementing intersect not just with 340B, but with analytics. Analytics is big right now in this space, and our role in the healthcare system is going to be to help our hospitals and our customers understand how to use their data to tell a better story and how they are affecting um, patient care. 
Yeah, well, that is really interesting. And, uh, you know, you can tell that you're, you've got a great background and uh, got some great uh connections through all of those different experiences. So you're very well connected. And something you didn't mention, but I think that also plays a role in your success is somebody in your position has to have that emotional intelligence as well to be able to kind of navigate uh, the different uh, stakeholders and, and different things going on. So Yes, very big role and um, sounds like you're doing a fantastic job over there. Um, yeah, and so it's great that you, actually, it's great, Hillary, you mentioned emotional intelligence. So another book um, that I'm reading is actually Everyday Emotional Intelligence. So it's a Harvard Business Review um, compilation of everything that they have published over emotional intelligence. And it is key in being able to be effective and maneuver um, a market that's shifting for sure. Absolutely. So Lisa, I've got two more questions. One, what are some of the things that excite you most about the future of pharmacy? Oh man. Well, the future of pharmacy is bright. I'll tell you that. Um, I'll never forget um, a pharmacy student that I was a mentor for in Washington, D.C., who sent me sunglasses several years later uh, when I was actually promoted to chief operating officer for 340B Help. So get your sunglasses on. Um, is it changing? Absolutely. Yes. Um, can we influence that change? Yes. Um, but we need to ensure we have a seat at the table. Um, I think the old saying, if you are not at the table, you are probably on the menu applies here. I don't know about <laughs> you, but I don't want to be considered as the first course or the main course when it comes to healthcare, specifically in pharmacy. I want to decide what's on that menu. Um, that is, I want to be the chef. So I think when I look at the future of pharmacy, right now, payer models are really at the crux of breaking through, and our health system needs solutions that are sustainable, affordable, and that work. Pharmacy as a collaborator with health system leadership can really decrease costs and improve patient outcomes. I saw this with the patient safety collaborative that I participated in with HRSA. Pharmacists can and do make a difference. I think pharmacy is going to drive this change through systematic review of analytics, meaning big data. Pharmacy has data and being able to tell that story with the data to make changes in our nation's health system is going to be key. So the bottom lines of health systems right now are shrinking and pharmacy has the solutions, whether it be HCAP scores and how to influence those scores. There are initiatives that pharmacy programs can do to elevate those scores, identification of lost revenue charges. And then there's just building programs based on your hospital data on where you need to improve. So while we have great clinical programs that pharmacy has been instrumental with over the last 10 to 15 years, whether that's, you know, anticoagulation therapy clinics, antimicrobial stewardship and medication management. What is missing, though, based on our patient population is going to be key. And that's population health. So, oh, yes. That's what is going to be key in moving in that direction. Uh, wonderful. I, that I'm excited about all of those things too. I definitely think that the future's bright. And I loved your, your comment about being, uh, 
a seat at the table or being on the menu. I'll have to remember that one. Um, and, <laughs> and Lisa, as the final question, what is some advice that you would tell your younger self or for other pharmacists out there who are just getting started in their career? Wow. If I could visit my younger self. Hmm. So it's like the ghost of Christmas past. Well, I would say keep learning. Um, never stop. I think as early careerists, we often are inundated from spending, you know, seven to nine years of your prior life studying and going through school and going through graduate programs that we just want a break to start families and to live life because, you know, we went to school to afford a certain lifestyle and we've had delayed gratification syndrome that kicks in. And so what I say, if I could go back to my younger self is say, don't break too long. Yes, you need a break, but stay engaged, participate, and be your number one advocate for the profession. You would hate really to look up from your desk or your counter or your workspace and wonder, you know, where did everybody go? Because we don't need pharmacists any longer because they were too busy to let us know what they really do and the role that they play on improving healthcare. So that's when you know you've been the main course. So get to the table now. That's my advice. All right. That is excellent. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you, Hillary. And I look forward to your future podcast with Talk to Your Pharmacist. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks everybody for checking out this episode. Be sure to look at our website, which has show notes of this episode and others at www.pharmacyadvisory.com. And let us know what are some episodes that you've liked? Uh, Are there other topics that you might be interested in? Is there a speaker who we should interview? Uh, Let us know. We've got contact information there on the website. Connect with me on LinkedIn and be sure to reach out before the APHA conference that is going to be in Nashville in March because we will be there.